Bibles with you, and if you don't, there should be one there in the pew rack before you. Uh, I invite you and encourage you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 22, where we will continue our study uh, in verse 66. Now, as you do that, uh, let me also explain that the outlines that I made available to you this morning, they were in the back and there are some in the windows. If you didn't get one, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, and I, I want to just tell you that I've given them to you for three main reasons. One, uh, I want to give them to you for clarity's sake. So it has come to my attention that often what is clear to me in my outline may not be clear to you as you are trying to follow along. And so hopefully this will help give you a little bit of um, a picture into my mind, which is a scary thing. So uh, maybe it'll help you follow along, track along with where I am. Secondly, if you take notes, uh, this will give you a place to do that, and it will give you something you can stick in your Bible and you can look at throughout the week. You can look at from week to week, remember where we've been and where we're going. And then lastly, I've given it to you either to frustrate you or to encourage you. Uh, depending on where we are in the outline, it may frustrate you. Uh, depending on where we are, it may encourage you. There is an end in sight. You will be able to see where we are. So um, I've provided those to you for your benefit. Use them as you see fit. Use them accordingly, okay? Now, with all of that in mind, let's begin in Luke chapter 22 and in verse 66 and read through 23 and in verse 25. This is God's word. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people and teaching them throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. They all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word, we pray that you might illumine our hearts and our minds so that we might rightly understand and apply all that you have said to us to the end that we might live as your people and that we might glorify our King and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Jesus on trial. Well, growing up, like most children, I always uh, enjoyed a good sick day. Uh, Now, truthfully, I guess it was the cause of that sick day that really dictated how enjoyable the day was. Uh, But, you know, if it was just a cough or a little fever, uh, then it was certainly better than the alternative, which was, of course, being at school. Uh, And so one of the things that made those sick days off so much fun uh, was the incredible lineup uh, that daytime TV had to offer. Who, who knew? Uh, it was a shock to learn that while we were enduring the rigors of the educational system, a show like Maury Povich was solving the ills of society with a lie detector test, and The Price is Right was just handing out a whole assortment of great things, including brand new cars. This was a whole new level of TV experience that apparently uh, was unavailable after the hour of 3 p.m., um, but you know, as, as great and as good as it was, there was at least one show that had to be avoided. That's right. I'm talking about a little lady known as Judge Judy. Now, some of you will laugh at that, and others will be exasperated that I would say such things about a national treasure. But the truth is, uh, is that any objective viewer could conclude after about six seconds of watching that show that the whole thing was at the very least, uh, at the very least, a slight on the whole judicial system and may very well have been a sham altogether, right? Uh, it was the fledgling beginnings of reality TV, and as such, it had to go. And so, Judge Judy, she was on the, the sick-day blacklist. It, it, it looked real. It was a real courtroom, real courtroom. It had real cases, it had a real judge, it offered real justice and recompense, but in the end, uh, it was a travesty, we'll just say. It was not what it claimed to be, at least in my juvenile mind. And so, it had to go. Now, maybe you feel that way about Judge Judy, maybe you don't, but as we turn to our passage today, we are confronted by a trial by a process of justice that makes Judge Judy look like the very best version of our Supreme Court. Not only is an innocent man here falsely accused, not only are those who are in authority, who who have declared him innocent, not only are they influenced, uh, are unable even to resist those who are beneath them, those who they are in charge over, in the end, it is a guilty man 
who goes free. While the innocent one, who, oh yeah, is also the Son of God, God in the flesh, is sentenced to the worst kind of death. Death on a cross. You want to talk about a mockery of the whole judicial system. Friends, what is before us is it. Here, Jesus, our Lord, is on trial, and we have to wonder, what exactly can we learn from a passage like this? Is it only outrage? Is it only anger that we should feel in these moments? And to be sure, as we consider what has happened to our Lord here, it is some amount of that that should well up in us. But then when we consider that that it was as much our sin that that sentenced him to such a fate as it is the sins of these people that we recognize here, we we understand that that outrage and anger is not all we can feel. And so again, I ask, what can we learn here in this passage? Well, as we've said in previous sermons, we certainly here see the great love Jesus has for his people in these verses. Um, This was not something that that he had to take. Uh, This was something he could have ended at any moment. And so the fact that we see this play out, we see this whole thing unfold before us, it should cause us to wonder at his love. It should cause us to wonder at his grace for people like us because the reason he stayed there was to fulfill the plan of God and to save sinners like you and I. So we could have gone that route. We also could have looked at a passage like this and as we said last week, we see here the way that that sinful men make their plans. The way that they think they're in charge. The way they think they are doing things according to their own will. And yet ultimately... It is God who is at work, right? Ultimately, it it is his plan that is unfolding. The larger plan to be sure, but it it is his plan. And we could say, well, that's the same in our lives even now. As we look out at the world, as we look at all of the hardship, all the trials, and we wonder, God, what are you doing? Well, here is our proof. Here is proof positive that what he is doing is working out his glory. What he is doing is working for our good. He is bringing all things to completion, and and he reminds us of that in passages like this. As we see Jesus go to the cross, as we see him die next week, we'll be reminded that the Lord is committed to his plan far more than than even we are. And so again, uh, we could have gone either of those routes, but as I've wrestled with it this week, and as we kind of zero in on these trials themselves. I think there is a third, uh, particularly timely lesson that we can learn here. What I want to suggest to you this morning uh, is that Jesus, as he faces the anger, the unwarranted hate, the injustice of a sinful world, we see in his experience what we can expect from a world that is bent against him. We see in his experience what we can expect if we live for him, if we respond the way that he calls us to, if we live for his word. Not only that, but we see in this passage how we should respond to such actions. We see how we should respond to a world that is going to be against us. And then finally, and most importantly, we see how we can do that. 
we see how Jesus is able to endure all of these things at the hands of sinful men. And we recognize in ourselves our only hope for doing the same. So as we work this, I want, as we work through this, I want you to keep all of those things in your mind. Because that's, that's my goal. That's where I'm trying to lead us this morning, okay? And so let's look at it together and let's see Jesus on trial. First in this passage, I want you to notice, as you see there on your outline, if you have it before you, the denial of Jesus. The denial of Jesus. Now to be sure, uh, as we've seen throughout Luke's gospel, this has been happening all along the way. You know, in every encounter, in every conversation, people... Uh, consciously or not, have either accepted Jesus or they have denied the truth that he has said. You know, again, whether they did it intentionally or whether they didn't, you cannot be approached with Jesus. You cannot face him without having one or two responses. Either you are going to follow him or you're going to go the other way. Just side note, because we're not going to have time to really delve into this today, but you see this so clearly in Pilate and Herod. Both of them get so close, Pilate particularly. He declares him innocent. But where does Pilate ultimately end this story? Not a believer. Close is not close enough, right? Jesus says, you're either for me or you are against me. And Pilate here, he he misses the whole thing. But all along the way, uh, this has been the case. But here... Uh, it becomes even more obvious. The denial becomes more poignant. And we see it in three ways. And again, your outline there, if you have it before you, subpoints. That's, that's, that's where I've been getting off. Anyway, subpoints. They're there. Three of them. Subpoints. First one, you see the word, uh, the truth. Word is denied. And you see it there uh, in verse 67. It says, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now, we may say, well, that's not so much a denial as it is a question. But but in truth, friends, it is a denial. And Jesus says as much. What has he revealed to them all along the way? What has he clearly put on display in his work, in his words, in his person, the whole time that he has been with them? The truth of who Jesus is is obvious, and so now as they come to the end only to have a mock trial, what what really is a sham, and they know it is from the beginning, Jesus says, if I answer you, you're not going to believe. You haven't believed up to this point. You have no intention of believing now. So, I won't tell you. I won't speak. I, I won't give you that word again. In in truth, they are denying all that Jesus has said. You see it again in verse 70. Uh, You see it again in verse 53. In verse 3, I'm sorry. Essentially, uh, they are confirming. uh, Jesus is essentially confirming what they ask. And yet, in the end, what is the response? Over and over again, it is unbelief. They deny his word. Secondly, they, they deny the clear evidence that is before them. Now again, we could go back to the evidence that he has given them and his miracles and all of those various things, but here they deny the clear evidence that their own authorities recognize and see. Pilate says over and over again, there is no guilt in this man. 
Herod sees it as well. Now, Herod doesn't respond very well to it, but he recognizes that Jesus is not guilty of all of the things that they are accusing him of. He's innocent. Yet we see in verse 5 and in verse 10 and in verse 22 how though the evidence is right there before them, the truth of the situation is there. Deny it over and over and over again. Thirdly, they proceed to deny justice. You see it there in verse 18. Uh, It's obvious to Pilate that the whole thing is a sham. And so as was the custom at Passover, he offers to release a prisoner. He offers to release Jesus. But notice the people cry out for Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas, who in verse 19 is an actual criminal. A murderer, no less. They would rather have a murderer than Jesus. Now, friends, that would have been enough to say justice had been denied. But then we come to verse 20. Verse 20 there in chapter 23. And what do they say? They say, crucify him. Crucify Not just, hey, throw him in prison. Not just, hey, you know, give him some lashes and send him out. That would have been bad enough, either one of those two things. But they say no. Sentence him to the worst kind of death. To the death that the worst kind of criminals get to experience. An innocent man. Crucified. To say the least, there is no justice here. And so... Uh, Jesus, despite his words, despite the evidence, despite what would seem to be common sense justice, he is denied, he is mistreated, he is persecuted by his accusers, by unbelieving sinners. And as we try to, to come to a point of application here, we see, friends, what we too can expect if we follow him, if we live for him in a lost and dying world. If they denied the Lord of glory, the one who came full of grace and truth, then how can we expect any different as his people? As with our Lord, those lost in unbelief, they will deny our words, despite the truth of what we have said, despite the truth of God's word, despite words that we say to the contrary of what they are are accusing us of. They will dismiss us as hateful or as bigots or as unloving or as close-minded. All words that we're getting real familiar with, right? We're hearing them more often, more and more. They will mock our beliefs. They will claim what we claim to be true about Christ. They will deny the the evidence of our lives. They will deny how we live. If we live as Christ has called us to live, then we will love our neighbor as ourselves. They will deny those truths and then they we can be sure that they will deny justice falsely accusing labeling our groups hate groups removing what seems to be our basic rights in short the world satan will persecute god's people and again i hope you recognized in jesus's trial his trial how irrational the whole thing is. Like it, none of it, in the end, makes any sense, right? It's so over the top. It's a 
reminder of how committed the world is to being against what Christ has done, what he has said. They did it to Jesus. We should expect no different. And God's word assures us of this truth, right? Uh, If you turn to John chapter 15 and in verse 20, it says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, this is Jesus speaking, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If you turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 12 it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus has given us the assurance that this is the reality for those who are truly resting and believing in him. And so, my point is, is we should be ready. We should be ready. Friends, we have been blessed to live in a, a nation and in a time and a place where we have not had to experience these things. Now that has not been the reality for the majority of the world that we live in, but for us it has been the reality, and we should praise God every day for that. But we all can see the reality of the situation. We all, if we have eyes to see, and if you turn on the TV at any point, if you open your phone, then you know the reality of what's coming. You can see it there. And so the options are twofold. We can compromise with the world and we can live as the world would have us live or we can stand on God's word, which is what I I pray and what I'm committed to us doing and what I think the session is committed to us doing. We can stand on God's word, which is certainly what he calls us to do. And if we do that, then here is what will happen. Here is how the world will react. So we need to be ready. By faith, we need to steal ourselves to the truth of the situation. By faith, we need to prepare our children for the reality of what is to come. Now, that leaves us with two major questions. Two major questions that respond to our last two points. How do we respond to this? How do we endure So secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice the response of Christ. Now before we see it, let me ask you, in the full face of such injustice, how do our hearts tend to respond? How how do we want to react to the trial of Jesus? How do we want to react when people say false things about us? When they accuse us of things that are not true? We want to have outrage, right? We want to be angry. We, we want to, to see that people, we want to settle the score. We want to turn the tables on all of those false accusers. A quick internet search, a quick joan on social media will prove my point to be true. Everybody claims to want justice and those who deny it are quickly canceled, are yelled at, are absolutely dressed down for their indiscretions. And even as Christians... If the injustice is done to us, we all stand up and we say, yeah, that's right. Give them what they deserve. We all want to get mad about it. 
notice how Jesus responds here. And this is going to be the theme throughout these last hours of Jesus' life. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He does not insult or accuse in return. He doesn't even take up his own cause to defend himself. He says, well, that's what you say. And he very well could have said, yes, I said these things. And yes, this is true. And here is why. And he could have laid out the whole thing. He doesn't do that. Throughout this whole process, he is calm and he is quiet. Again, though he had the power and the right to give everyone exactly what they deserved more than anybody else, he could have done that in these moments. He doesn't respond as we so often do or as our hearts want to. Really, in every way, friends, and I say this in the most respectful and God-honoring way I can, in every way, he is submissive in these moments. He's submissive. Now, we could say, oh, he was just fulfilling the plan of salvation. This was what he had to do to save. And that would certainly be right. That is absolutely true. But I would still submit to you that Jesus here is giving us an example to follow. Consider his own words in Luke chapter 6. Turn back with me if you, if you can. Luke chapter 6, this is a, a longer passage, beginning in verse 27. He says, this is Jesus speaking, our Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now we can take those words and we can say, well, yeah, but... We can begin to rationalize them in a whole host of ways, but if you just take them at face value, do you hear what Jesus is saying to every one of us? He says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do, withho do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now that's enough to prove my point. But friends this theme carries on throughout the New Testament. It carries on throughout Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 10 For the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak I am strong. And then in Romans chapter 12, and we'll come back to this one. So if you want to stick your finger in Romans 12 for a minute or put a piece of paper there or something, we're going to come back to it later on. Romans 12 and in verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with 
all people. In other words, as Christians, we must measure our response. And we must measure it against what Christ has demonstrated to us. We must measure it against His response to a hostile world. Now, does that mean that that we cannot defend ourselves? Does that mean that, that we can't stand up for what's right? No. Jesus calls us over and over again to stand up for what's right. He does that on behalf of so many people throughout His earthly life. He does that for us even now. He calls us to do the same. But if in pleading our case, if in standing up, no one can tell whose side we are truly on, then friends, we're doing it wrong. If we are responding with the same anger, the same hate, God forbid, if we are responding with the same violence as the world responds to us, then we've missed the point. And we are misrepresenting God and we are misrepresenting His Word. We should have a calmness. We should have a mercy, a love, a hope. We must follow Christ in how we respond to persecution. Now, the question is, and I recognize it, friends, because I feel it as I say these words. How can we do that? Because my heart right now wants to say, "Uh, well, that sounds good. And I appreciate the reality of that, and I think that's what Jesus is saying. But if they do this to my family, they do this to me, then I'm going to respond this way. You know, I'll, I'll be kind when they were doing this to other people. But if they're doing it to me, so how? How do we respond that way? How do we follow after our Savior? How do we not be angry? How do we not be terrified? Well, thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice the hope of Christ the hope of Christ. We've seen the denial of Jesus, the response of Jesus, and now we see the hope of Jesus. You see it there in verse 69. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. One verse. How can Jesus remain calm? How can he continue to allow this sham to unfold? Well, friends, the answer is, is he was fully trusting in the plan of his Father. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that he continually entrusted himself to his Father. As they mocked him, as they ridiculed him, as they beat him, he was continually looking to his Father. So he's doing that here. He was also looking. And hear, hear this, hear this. He was also looking to the eternal reality that that plan would secure. He knew what was ahead. Knew what the Father had promised. And he lived as if it was true. Which it was. Which it is. He knew that these who persecuted him, if they did not repent, that one day they would face retribution that this whole sham it would not stand he knew that ultimately the wicked could not continue on so as Paul says back in Romans chapter 12 remember I told you to stick your finger there oh and I I I didn't do that sorry about that 
in Romans chapter 12 and in verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And here it is. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus recognized this. He knew that he himself would be their judge. That he would be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he would come to judge the living and the dead. Not only that though, but as he says those words in verse 60, now he recognizes that judgment is coming, but he also recognizes that it is from there that he will serve as the Savior of his people. Remember, it is at God's right hand that he mediates for us. Remember, it is as he sits there right now that he intercedes on our behalf when we don't know what to pray. He prays for us from there. So in other words, Jesus could face the trial, as James says, with great joy. Because, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He believed that God was using it all for good. Christ was resting in what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 17. It's right there on the top of your bulletin. For this light and momentary affliction, and I don't mean to, to make light of Jesus' affliction because it was great, but the truth still stands. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, the persecution and the, the hardships and the trials, we don't look to those things. We look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are transient. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that the things that happen in this world, that they're passing away? The good things, the bad things, that ultimately they will pass away. And do you believe the last part of that verse, that the things that are unseen, the spiritual things, the things that Jesus has revealed to us, that they are eternal? Can we rest in that bigger picture? Friends, that will dictate to us how we respond to the world. How we respond to persecution. It will show us if we can do that. Are we resting in what Jesus has said? Are we resting in the eternal reality of what is to come? If we're to stand. And friends, doing Mega Life every Thursday and having three kids of my own. If our children are to stand. Because, let's just be honest, what they're getting at every single place, except here and in their homes, is not eternal things. All the time. Leading them the other way. And so if they are to stand, they must rest in these truths. They must rest in Jesus, in the eternal reality. Consider, one last time, I know we've quoted a lot of scripture today, but consider one last time the things that Jesus has said. Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Back in 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is the last one I'll read. 
and in verse 14, it says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do we believe that? In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus says, I'm coming, and I'm bringing a crown of life, a crown of life that only He can give, and one He has secured through by being obedient to the point of death, by enduring persecution at the hands of those he had created, by willingly standing as our substitute. And friends, as we bring this to a close, don't miss the great truth that that this passage gives us there at the very end. Pilate offers to free Jesus. But who walks free in his place? A sinner. Barabbas, a liar, a murderer, one who deserved whatever was coming his way. He walked free. And Jesus, as we will take up next week, is crucified, died, and is buried. He is condemned to the cross. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, Barabbas' story is your story. It's yours. And because it is, we can face trials, we can face persecution, we can face this evil age with a calm and unshakable hope for what he has done, but also for what he will do. Look, the the truth is, I don't know with any certainty what is coming for Christians in the years to come. I pray that that it's not what it seems to be. Again, like you, I can see the signs and I know what Christ has said, what we will face. But no matter what, we need to be ready. Ready to respond, ready to endure, ready to rest in the reality of what Christ has said. So may he, may he give us the courage and the strength to stand for him. To stand on his word, to trust and to believe what he has said more than we trust and believe the things that are often before our eyes, right? May he help us to rationalize in our minds the things that we don't see, the things he has said are truer, more real than the things that we do. And may he point our eyes to himself continually, continually to Jesus as we pray together. Father God, we, we, we consider these things uh, and Lord, we look out at the world and we recognize the truth of what we've said. And Lord, I, I don't preach this with the intent of causing uh, panic or causing us to, to be afraid. Because you call us not to be afraid, uh, to, to live with boldness. And so that's not my intent here. Uh, but Lord, we certainly see the truth. And your word assures us of the truth. That, that if we live for you as you have called us to, if we stand on your word and your word only, Uh, then the world is going to hate that as much as they hated you. Uh, And so, God, as we uh, come to terms with this, as we recognize it's coming, and as it does come, whether it's for us or for our children or for our children's children, Lord, we pray that that we would learn to be ready, that we would teach them to be ready, uh, and, Lord, that you would give us the, the wisdom and the grace and the courage to love you more than we love anything else. And to recognize that, that what you have promised us is eternal. The, these things are just a blip on the radar of eternity. Lord, our minds, we're finite beings, and our minds can't, can't wrap, uh, wrap around such a thing as eternity. Uh, but Lord, that's the truth that you have assured us of. And so I pray that you would help us to live in it, and that that living in it would 
manifest, manifest itself in the way that we respond to a lost and a dying world. Lord, we pray for the world. We pray for sinners. We pray for people who, who hate you openly right now. Lord, do a great and mighty work in their heart. Turn us back. Turn our nation back. Lord, through it all, may we stand for you as your people, and may you be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.